0: Welcome to this week's Strange Pathways. I'm your host, Scott Mort. I hope you're having a better week than I am. I'm I'm currently kind of a little miserable. Uh, I really thought winter was over. Right now in Johnstown it is twenty two degrees snow everywhere. It's heartbreaking to me. It's it's so frustrating. I truly just want winter to be over. But as long as it's here, I'll deal with it. I want to alert all of my listeners to a, a new podcast out there. I I gave it some listens. I really enjoyed it myself. I think that you guys will enjoy it too, Fear Embodied. It's a wonderful, wonderful podcast right in the vein of Strange Pathways. I would strongly suggest my my two favorites so far is uh, Behind the Fear featuring Tiffany Edwards and the Sea Monsters episode, which ironically are back-to-back episodes. Fantastic content. Right now, they're only at six episodes. I would love to see them grow. I want to hear more. I'm addicted. I think you'll probably get addicted, too. Once again, that's Fear Embodied. I'll shoot you a link over to the Apple Podcast version of Fear Embodied. I'll leave that link on the Strange Pathways Facebook page. Our first tale is going to take us all the way to Japan, mid-1970s. There's this vegetable farmer. He's a young man, 28 years old. His name is Yoshihira Fujiwara. And he's he's a hard working guy. On April sixth, nineteen seventy-four, around three AM, Yoshihiro's awoken by the sound of of the guard dogs barking, just wildly barking, going nuts. And then there's a rapid series of knocks on his front door. <sighs> Like anyone, 3 a.m., and this is a hard-working guy. Like anyone, 3 a.m., he drags himself out of bed. He's exhausted, more than a little irritated. He he goes over to the Japanese entryway, the Kengan. He places his hand on the doorknob, flings the door open. And all of that anger, that irritation that that exhaustion fades away I used to live in the woods and I will tell you there is no more terrifying thing than someone knocking on your door at 3am because whenever you live in the woods and someone's on 3am it's one of two things. It's bad news or it's trouble. And on the doorstep, it was not good news. Lit by moonlight was a strange creature. Three feet tall. Wearing some sort of clear vinyl outfit. And this, this creature... It was a strange mix of a starfish and an octopus. It has this large, bulbous, octopus-like head. It's got a pair of downward-slanting eyes, one single V-shaped nostril, and its mouth. Its mouth is wide, and it's grinning. Now even though this thing was very octopus-like, it stood uh, on two of its limbs. All of this creature's limbs though, it, they, they tapered to rounded nubs. It didn't really have much of a torso. It was just sort of like this hub of flesh in the center of its body. This creature wore a blue cone-shaped helmet and there was a small antenna emerging from the apex of it on the top of the antenna was this elliptical disc that emitted odd bursts of visible electricity and this electricity was cascaded down over down over this creature the skin was brownish and bumpy Fujiwara said it looked like the toad flesh. But a toad doesn't really have, like, that sheen of slime. This thing is covered by slime. And then, looking closer, he realizes that there's these lumpy freckles, these blue and yellow scabs all over this creature. Fujiwara is looking at this thing. This thing is looking back at him. One of its limbs is lifted skywards. And all of a sudden, Fujiwara's home is enveloped by this hot beam of orange light. Fujiwara is terrified. He slams his door and goes and hides in his bedroom. He looks, he looks through his window, which I believe was incredibly brave. I, I would have been hiding under the covers. But he looks through his window and he sees that the orange light and heat is coming from a flying saucer. Five feet in height. 26 feet in diameter, about 70 feet off the ground. It's, it's becoming a very bad day for Fujiwara. He, he feels this, this warm gust of air fly around his feet. And he finds himself being drawn toward his window, inexplicably. And I don't mean, I don't mean he's like walking and he can't control himself. I mean, he's being pulled there as if by a tractor beam. This man, this poor, poor man is torn out the window. He's going toward the flying saucer. Fujiwara is like kind of curling up. He thinks he's going to hit the side of this craft. He's bracing himself. He's he's waiting for that hit. And then instead of hitting the outside, he, he realizes that he's being absorbed through the side of the saucer. He finds himself inside. He lifts his head off the floor, and he's looking at his surroundings. He's in a room. It's blue. He sees these weird lamp-like attachments on the walls, air vents, and a large sign in in writing that looks vaguely Japanese, but not really. Really? And then the scent hits him. There's this overwhelming, noxious scent that leaves him queasy. And that's whenever he notices the two octopus starfish aliens. Now there's two of them. He panics. He tries to push himself up. But these things... They, even though they're only three feet tall, they're incredibly strong and they're they're holding him down to the floor. He doesn't have a fighting chance. It's at this point, it's at this point, he starts to hear a voice in his head that is not his own. These things are trying to calm him. Through his head, over and over, he hears... No danger. We promise to release you close to your house. No danger. We promise to release you close to your house. It doesn't sit right with him, though. He does. He keeps struggling, and he manages to to get himself away from them. And he starts running through the ship. He sees a partially open hatch and he's terrified he throws himself out of the hatch Yoshihiro tosses himself out and whether it's whether it's luck whether it's the mercy of these aliens whether you want to say it's God This flying saucer was only 10 feet off the ground at the time. Yoshihiro Fujiwara hits the ground with a thud. He's in pain, but that adrenaline's kicked in. He scrambles to his feet. He wants to escape. He sprints as fast as he can away from the saucer. And towards a nearby house, and starts pounding on the door, now the homeowners they 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 take a peek outside and they recognize they recognize uh, fujiwara, and they let him inside it was it It was then that. Fujiwara finds out. He he's thinking this has been 10 minutes. 15 minutes. No. This had lasted an hour and a half. He he gathers himself. Gets himself calm. Skirts up that bravery. And he uh He walks back home. There. There was. Around the same time. There was a junior high school student. Named Miyuki Fujita. Who lived nearby. That was. That was woken up. By a bright orange light. Shining outside of her window. No one else saw the craft. But. This, this young lady, she did see that orange light. She kind of ignored it. But she did testify that it was much, much brighter than the moon. 24 hours pass. Fujiwara begins to feel bursts of excruciating pain in his ears, in his fingertips, he grabs a pencil and some scrap paper. He is he is just compelled to write. Fujiwara says that he falls into this this trance state. And he starts to write down this series of hieroglyphs that he can't understand. And then a booming voice in his head tells him when the disk lands on the mountain, you will come and board by yourself. Whether it was compulsion, whether it was a need to see things through, maybe he did it just to prove to himself he wasn't going insane. Fujiwara followed the voice's orders. April 8th. He goes out with two friends to Nikoro Mountain. They arrive at 6.30 in the evening. And he leaves his friends behind, walks to the peak by himself. He gets to the very peak and Fujiwara sees the same orange flying saucer. He walks on board, and he's given a tour of, of space, flies around the moon, flies around the earth twice. Once again, this journey takes 90 minutes to complete, an hour and a half. His friends find him unconscious. They take him home and it takes Fujiwara days to recover. Whenever, whenever he's taking this time to recover, he realizes that he can, he can communicate with these aliens that had, that had taken him. He could, he finds that he can bend small pieces of metal with his mind. April 13th, 1974, these octopoid starfish aliens invite Fujiwara to go on one more trip. He said that that sense of terror that he first had, now it's being replaced with a sense of wonder. They fly out past Mars... They fly towards Jupiter. They land on Saturn's largest moon, Titan. One of the starfish octopus creatures. They leave the vehicle, grab a rock from the surface of Titan... And give it to Yoshihiro as a gift. I know I'm going back, back and forth between Fujiwara and Yoshihiro. They're both his name. Fujiwara is really excited to have proof. Whenever he's returned to Earth, he goes and takes the rock to the University of Studies of Engineering in Katami. the team runs tests on the stone and they find out the, the rock was just a chunk of stalactite from the local Katami cave. That revelation doesn't really stop Yoshihiro. The visitations do stop. But Yoshihiro says that he's maintained a dialogue with these creatures. He, he referred to himself as the spokesman for the Summon Call Space Union. He, he claims that he's able to, to teleport. He said, and I quote, I can teleport to a star... 250 million light-years away in six minutes. My role is delaying the natural disasters such as earthquake and eruptions. Yoshihiro further claimed that he had access to three UFOs. He used these UFOs to stop volcanic eruptions, They allowed him to travel inside the hollow earth. One can make the claim that Fujiwara is disturbed. One can say he's making it all up. But there was something about this case. The reason I picked this one as I was reading over the plethora of cases, there was something familiar about it. And then it hit me. This case felt a lot like Indrid Cold and Woodrow Derenberger. Cliff Notes version, Derenberger is driving... All of a sudden, this hourglass-shaped UFO flies past him, lands, and a smiling man who calls himself Indrid Cold, comes out. A dialogue is created, and pretty soon Derenberger it, it escalates. It goes from "I'm visiting with them often," to "I'm being taken in their ships," to." They're going to take me back to their home planet, give me a sex change, and let me live there for a while as a woman. And of course, none of that happened to Woodrow Derenberger. But perhaps something manipulated these men's perception of reality perhaps the same thing that visited Fujiwara was the same thing that visited Derenberger it gave them a little bit of truth just to see how far they would take it and whenever these men took that truth It gave them a little bit more mixed with some lies and a little bit more and a little bit more. Until these men are making claims that are beyond outrageous. They're given evidence that is false. I've long believed that something is playing with us. Something toys with us. Native Americans call it the trickster. And while I'm not discounting what happened to Fujiwara, in my mind, it's more likely that this trickster entity is behind everything. Then a vegetable farmer who owns three UFOs to travel to the inner earth to stop earthquakes. If I have to pick between the two, a trickster playing a game on one of us or a farmer who owns three UFOs. I'm going to have to go with the trickster. Our next tale is going to take us all the way back to 1967, southwestern Bolivia, real close to a, a silver mining city called Potosi. There's a 24-year-old woman there. Her name is Valentina Flores, and she lives there with her husband, Gumercendo. They have a little baby daughter, Theodosia. Now remember, neither one of these people, not Valentina, not Gumercindo, they're not even aware or interested in UFOs they're They're doing everything they can to to make a living on this small parcel of land it's their job is survival they don't have time or the luxury of, of of looking at photos of flying saucers or listening to the radio about the reports going on in those days. It's late in the afternoon. Valentina has a flock of about 64 sheep and she's leading them out to a, a grazing field. And then, and then she notices and it's frustrating to her. Her herd of llamas had wandered off She said, in her own words, that day I was alone. My husband was commissioned, and like the rest of the men, he was in the Pampas working. It was around four in the afternoon. I went to look for the llamas and their young. They had gone astray. Then I gathered the sheep and the lambs in one place and went searching for the animals. She does find the llamas and their young. And at this point, it was starting to get dark. She returns home, and to her dismay and confusion, the sheep are nowhere to be found. She nears the stone corral that she has, and Valentina just kind of goes, there's there's something odd she can't quite get it and then it hits her there's this weird cover over the corral it's this weird substance that's draped like a tent over the whole stone enclosure it it looks it looks like plastic mesh and it's it's all coming from this pole structure in the center of the corral. And it's it's like spider webs. It's like it's attached itself to the rock walls. Valentina's kind of afraid. But, like I said, they're just barely scratching out a living. These sheep, they're important to the family. Valentina pushes her fears down, and she gets close enough to it, and then she sees, underneath this webbing, the disemboweled carcasses of the sheep, she's stunned, she's shocked and terrified. And then there's a flicker of movement. And she sees this child-sized thing. It's, it's struggling with a lamb. It's got this elongated tube with a, with a sharp hook at one end. And it's attached to the the thing, the creature, with a chain. Next to this small, child-sized creature is an open plastic bag filled with sheep entrails and organs. He's on his knees, and he's got the sheep between his legs. This thing had killed all of valentina's sheep she said the thing was chubby it had strange clothing like a diver a one piece from the neck to the feet and it had boots brown boots She said there was red crisscrossing straps that covered the, the thing's chest in an X shape. And it had this large mechanical backpack. And two utility satchels attached to its sides. She said this thing had an odd blocky helmet. And it had a little propeller crowning it. Valentina gets a really good look at this thing's face. White skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. And a thick red mustache. That fear gives way to fury. She starts cursing at this thing. And she's picking up rocks and throwing it at this creature. And the creature reacts. It releases the sheep that it has. And it turns around. And Valentina said that this thing had an expression of shock and fear on its face. It was not expecting to be caught. It was not expecting to be seen. This thing goes over to the pole structure and cranks a wheel and all, the, all that webbing that covered the corral goes into the mechanism quickly. Once that tent is gone... That Valentina has been been chucking rocks through. She notices a second one of them. Virtually identical standing at the other side of the corral. It didn't realize it could be seen. This second being. Sprints. Up a hill. And sits down in this chair Like device, a set of blades and and a rotor-like mechanism come out of a pair of these attachments behind the chair, and this creature takes off, leaving, leaving its comrade to fight for itself. Now Valentina, she works out in the field, you carry a weapon with you whenever you're out in the field. I'm, I'm sure that she's had to beat off coyotes, foxes, snakes, what have you. She removes a wooden, iron-tipped cudgel from the sack that she has. And she decides that she is going to kill the thing that killed her sheep. Now remember, there is... Blood and entrails and and massacred sheep everywhere. And she's walking into it, getting ready to fight this thing that killed her flock. And it just makes her angrier. The creature spoke to her, but she didn't understand it. It it wasn't speaking uh, Spanish. It wasn't speaking her tribe's language, uh, Quachua. He was upset. He was angry. She hits him with all of her strength with, with this cudgel. Right in the face. And he starts to bleed. This thing is screaming. She doesn't understand any of it. So he takes that cylindrical hook. This creature takes this hook that, that, that he was using to kill the sheep and flings it at Valentina. It slices into her chest and arms. The, the large knot in the front of her clothing, that's the only thing that prevented the blade from killing her. There, there are some reports that say this thing flew back to the creature. But Valentina insists that it was the chain. It, it automatically retracted the tool back into this creature's hands after every throw. Valentina strikes again. This time she connects with the creature's right arm. Blood is streaming down his dangling wrist, and the creature is just screaming. It, it decides that it's too much. It, it uses its left arm and grabs a radio-like contraption and literally heads over for the hill. It flies off in the same manner of his com- as his comrade. It's never seen again. A detachment of Bolivian army came there to investigate. They collected all 63 carcasses and samples of the creatures' blood. They they determined the sheep were missing multiple internal and external organs, eyes, ears, mouth, belly fat. Most of the blood was missing. Valentina and her family were forced to leave the region. This devastated them. They had to move. They're not the only ones that witnessed stuff, though. Some other ranchers in the area, they, they claim to see strange individuals leaping out of the sheep pens uh, and leaving behind mutilated carcasses. Valentina herself said that uh, just a few days before this encounter, uh, some, some individual, some entity, some unseen something threw a bowl of blood in her face. 63 sheep. This left Valentina Flores and her family in financial ruin not, not to mention the mental trauma there are a lot of people that that I talk to that say I would love to have one of these encounters, no you wouldn't no you would not these encounters have a high chance of ruining people. Even things that are mundane. Like seeing a UFO in the sky. Just little things like that. Those mundane encounters. They sometimes ruin people. Sometimes it's It's horribly ruining. Like what happened to Valentina. Sometimes it's just the loss of respect by your peers. The people you work with. We as a society need a little bit more sympathy for people in this situation. These people deserve to be listened to. When I was in my 20s, I had I had kind of an intense paranormal encounter. It was more of a more of a ghostly encounter. And maybe in the future I'll go into it in some depth. But I will never forget the way my friends treated me. After I told them what happened. I was scared. I was young. And it wasn't like I had the choice to not tell them. I had to explain to them why they saw me driving like a banshee away from my house, almost running them off the road. And they made fun of me. The, these people that I trusted, that I had believed, that I had helped out, and who had helped me in, in bad times, because I had something strange happen to me. It was, it was kind of painful. The only one, there there was a gentleman there who was part of the poking fun at me, even though I'd been through a traumatic experience. We were sitting playing, playing blackjack one night. And then he had heard the voices too. These strange, hushed voices coming from the corner of The basement room where we were playing blackjack. And they would only talk whenever we talked. He believed me. But the rest of my group of friends. Not so much. Our last tale is going to take us back to 1986. Houston, Texas. The Johnson Space Center. NASA archivist Frank Shaw comes home late from work. Now his daughter Desiree and Shaw's wife, they're not really alarmed by this. He works at NASA. He's he's often required to work late. But it's the way he's acting. He's He's freaking out. And he finally gets to a point where he can compose himself enough to tell them what has shook him so much. Shaw says he's, he was walking to his car at the end of his shift. And he looks up. And he sees a black gargoyle. Perched on the edge of one of the Space Center's buildings. Shaw is, is just, he's paralyzed by fear. He's, he can't move. He is terrified. This is a, a jet black humanoid creature. It seems to have a large cape draped across its shoulders, and it has two massive bat wings sticking out of either side of the fabric. Not only had Shaw seen this creature, but he got the feeling that this creature seemed to be enjoying the idea that he was giving this archivist such terror. the gargoyle unfurls its wings and there's, there's a crackling noise and it takes flight. This crackling sound, it, it snaps Shaw out of, out of the trance that he's in and he turns and sprints towards his car. Shaw fumbles with his keys, unlocks the car door and dives inside, cranks the engine, starts it and drives into the night He's too scared to even look in the rear view mirror Shaw's family God bless them Shaw 's family stood beside him they They do tell him though, please. Don't tell your superiors about this. You don't want to lose your job over this. You don't want your sanity to be be called into question. You work at NASA. If If you're telling people that you saw a gargoyle, and we believe you saw a gargoyle, but if you tell them that, then you're going to risk everything you've built. And Shaw says, you're right. You're right. Weeks go by. And he cannot get this thing out of his head. He's losing sleep. He's breaking down, crying. He's terrified to leave work. Finally, he can't take it anymore. He goes to his immediate supervisor. And the supervisor goes, yeah, you're not the first person to see this. We, we've actually opened a secret file on the gargoyle just a few months prior to your sighting. We had two German Shepherd guard dogs. We found their corpses, mutilated drained of blood and we found them exactly where you saw this gargoyle we know Shaw's story makes its way up the chain of command all the way to some NASA officials they decide to interrogate Shaw he is intensely grilled by what Desiree Shaw's daughter calls NASA security people who were flown in from somewhere in Arizona. They tell Shaw, don't tell this story to anyone else. And they didn't. Desiree waited 18 years to tell her father's story of the gargoyle to Nick Redfern. I would love I would love to hear more cases of this gargoyle. Is it is it a Mothman-like entity that precedes disaster? it might have been chances are this did not happen in early January of 1986 but if it did January 28th 1986 the space shuttle Challenger broke apart 73 seconds into flight killing all on board I mean that possibility exists right I would love to hear from any other employees of the Houston Space Center. Have you seen the gargoyle? Is this just some sort of entity? Some, something that's mistaken for the large pterodactyl-like creatures that are seen in Texas? Is it a portent of doom? Or? 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 Is it a psyops done by the U.S. government and NASA to see how faithful and mentally sound their employees are? little food for thought. Thank you for joining us again on Strange Pathways. Head on over to our Facebook page. We're going to have a lot of art, a few links to the tales that we've spoken about here today. Remember, there's going to be a link over there also to the Fear Embodied podcast. Please, please, please check them out. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at strangepathwaysmail at gmail.com and hey, we're getting out there. You can find us now, overcast FM. You can find us on Amazon Prime Podcasts and finally, finally, iTunes, we are on iTunes. Get out there. Tell your friends. Let your friends know. You know you've got that friend that's really going to enjoy a high strangeness podcast like the ones we produce over here at Strange Pathways. Get out there. Let other people know. I've seen, seen it two or three times this week over on the exports on 4chan. There are always people over there requesting, hey, could I have a good paranormal podcast? And a lot of people are out there going like, check out strange pathways thank you so much i want you to get out there i want you to have a great week take care of yourselves and each other